You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. The reason I host this podcast is because I love getting into people's journeys, showing you that not everybody has a straight upward line and that even once their biggest dreams come true, it's not all perfect. And this isn't to be disheartening or disenchanting, but with the hopes that you get out of your own way, that you give yourself more compassion, that you embrace who you are, allow yourself to be yourself and to trust yourself and the choices and changes that you have made and you want to made make. <laughs> Today, I'm doing a re-release of one of my favorite conversations, which that's a hard thing to say because I really love each and every conversation that I have. It's so special to get this time with people where they really open up and are real with me. And a lot of these people I have never talked to in my life, Bronnie Ware is one of those people. She's best known as the author of the international best-selling memoir, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It's been read by over a million people in 32 languages. Um, And I just, you know, those five regrets are quoted and shared all the time, oftentimes without giving her credit. You'll always see me online if I see it being like trying to tag Bronnie Ware. Like, yes, these are from her. Yes, she created these. She researched these. (laughs) Anyway, that's what most people know her as in her story is so incredible, but it's so incredible because just like her heart and uh, that she keeps going and like, how did she get to this place where she was talking to these people about their five regrets? It's a pretty incredible story. And I thought it would be super empowering as the start of the year. You know, I'm not someone that's all about let's make New Year's resolutions and goals and blah, blah, blah. It's a new year. So start over. Honestly, it's winter. It's hibernation time. So please show yourself love, respect, kindness. You don't have to be push, 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 go, go, go. I should have these motives, goals, resolutions. It's a great time to go inward. And um, again, that's why I love Bronnie's story and wanted to reshare this amazing conversation with the hope that it gets you thinking, empowered, um, just start thinking differently or reminding you about what it is that you do want and where you can show yourself more love and compassion. All right, let's get into the episode. Okay, so I love starting almost at the beginning and hearing like, what was life like for you growing up? And then especially like teenage years, because I feel like especially that can be like, there's, we put pressure on ourselves and the world does like, okay, what are we going to do with the rest of our lives? And so like, what was growing up like? And then do you remember feeling like a teenager and what you wanted to do? Or if parents were, you know, telling you, you should go to college or this or what? Okay. Growing up, I grew up um, on two different farms. One was a cattle and loosen farm that used to, that had a creek and used to flood all the time. And so we used to make it onto the TV news because they'd always have to put us onto a tractor to take us out through the flood water. (laughs) (laughs) But there was a lot of freedom in in our childhood because we're a large family on a farm and mum just wanted us outside most of the day. But it was also tricky because my dad was a really angry alcoholic, and uh, but he was also a musician. My my mum had been a singer, and dad had been a guitarist, songwriter, radio announcer, and then mum became a dietitian, and dad became an accountant. Well, they sort of did those as well as the music. So there were a few months a year where all these musicians would come and camp on our property, on our farm just when the wet season was up north so they couldn't travel up there so we'd have all this really amazing music around us and then they'd leave and dad would be an accountant and mum would be working at the hospital in the diet office so it was a sort of a funny contrast but I was pretty scared a lot of my childhood because of dad's anger but I really you know there was a lot of freedom we were just kids that were just outside all the time on our horses and just doing whatever we, we really liked on the farm. So that was wonderful. How many siblings did you have or do you have? 
Well, there were four of us, yeah, plus whatever neighbourhood kids were there because mum made the, the best rock cakes. So they what used to all come be at our house a lot. Well, um, I don't know what they'd be called if, if they're made over there. They're, they're hard, but not as hard as rocks. They're just made from like corn flakes and um, they're just little oh, okay. biscuits, um, but they're, they're made in a lump like a rock and they dry quite hard so they're crunchy and uh, with uh-huh. honey and I don't know, but mum was a bake, you know, used to love baking. So, yeah, there was a lot of beautiful stuff in, in my childhood, but there was, uh, but I carried some scars for it and I didn't know that at the time, of course, where you don't know any different. When and were they like, um, it sounds like, especially on your father, that like, I'm guessing he really wanted to be a musician and then was like, okay, now we have a family to make money. I will be an accountant. Or did he feel like he was like, fulfilled in what he was doing as a magician and how he was and still having people there and also or did it do you feel like he like settled into like okay I guess I have to get like a real job and that that could have even been where some anger and resentment came from yeah I you have nailed it you have absolutely nailed it that is exactly what happened that he was doing gigs six nights a week with his music and studying his accountancy and then he said he came home one night and mum was there. Mum had four kids in oh, five wow. years. So that's what seemed like a lot of kids. And um, and he said he came home one night and mum was just overwhelmed with all the children and he said, right, that's it, I'll quit the music. And so he just gave up that life. Yeah, and then all the his mates would come and they were touring nine months of the year gigging all the time and then they'd come and be on the farm writing music so he'd reconnect with that have a great time lots of music lots of alcohol and then they'd leave and yeah I think my dad was just a really sensitive person who was overwhelmed by his responsibilities of having four children yeah I I really do and do have compassion for him in that regard yeah yeah so what as you start to get older then and I know, yeah, from reading about you, that you're a songwriter now too. So was that like, did you kids all grow up like really like loving and enjoying and playing in the music too with that? Like I have to imagine, was that exciting also for you when the musicians would come or would, you know, or did they get to a point of like, or did any of your siblings be like, oh, it's this time of year again? <laughs> no, it, it was good because dad was in a, a different right. space then. So there wasn't the anger and the explosions. There was just dad, happy drunk dad, not angry, raging dad. So we loved it and we put on a lot of concerts as singing concerts and that sort of thing. But he wasn't at all patient in teaching us guitar. There was a time when I think maybe once when he sat down to teach us all and gave up on it. And then I didn't actually pick up the guitar. I always had musicians in my life. I was the one most like him in the sense of the creative expression and that sort of thing. But I always had musicians around me and guitarists around me, songwriters around me. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s when all of a sudden everyone moved away and I realised I actually had no live music in my life. And so I realised if I was going to write a song, I had to, if I wanted music in my life, I had to make it happen myself. And so I wrote my first song when I was 35, despite that. Wow. Yeah. But I I did the opposite thing. As a teenager, I did what I followed the accounting path and I went, I went straight into banking. And so I, as a teenager, I I was a good kid. We moved to a bigger farm, which was drought, uh, wheat and sheep. And it went straight into drought for several years. We were buying water. We had to we dragged off to church to pray for rain and when all our mates were over at the coast, which was about four-hour drive away for school holidays, us kids were sitting on the back of our horses with the sheep on the side, minding the sheep on the side of the roads because there was no feed left in the paddocks. So my teenage years um, were not what I, you know, they, they, they weren't exciting. We didn't live in town. We... So when after school we were home on the long bus ride and, yeah, it wasn't really until my older sister got her licence that teenagehood became a bit more exciting because we could hang out in town a bit longer and she'd drive us home. Well, I did wanted to ask something too. Yeah, when you said like then you chose accounting something too, was that like did you just pick up on that? Like this is how 
I need to make money. Like, did part of you like accounting? Like, what do you think even made you choose accounting? Was it like, I need a stable money finances? I just knew I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to move to the city. And so I just walked into a bank in our country town and said, can I have a job in a bank, one of your branches in Sydney? And they said, come in and sit down and we'll have a chat. And where? And my grandmother lived in Sydney. And so, yeah, two weeks after I finished school, I moved in with my grandmother in Sydney. And uh, no, so it wasn't that at all. It was, it never crossed my mind at all, Tricia, that I would be a creative person, despite all that music, because the dominant force in the family was a Monday to Friday job. And so my plan was to just get into banking for a year and decide what I wanted to do. And I was debating between either being a maths and PE teacher, like sports teacher, and I loved mathematics, so hence why while I was in banking, or, or to join the mounted police force. So within a year, instead of going on to college to do become a maths and PE teacher or to join the mounted police force, within a year I was engaged to oh. a drug dealer and I never went to, yeah, he grew his own pot and, and sold his own pot. And so here I was thinking I was going to be a good girl and join the police force, but I actually married a lawbreaker instead. And at the time, did you know that that's what he was doing? Yeah, I did, but I was so naive and straight off the farm and I just thought, well, you either go to college or you get married and have kids. And he was 10 years older than me and uh, I thought that was it. I had it sorted, white picket fence, and I was engaged to him when I was 19 and married when I was 20 and I left a few years later when I actually started to realise life isn't exactly that way, yeah, that we actually have a few more choices than we think. Yeah. So. Being in that relationship and you said, you mentioned like, I realized that we had more choices or whatever. Like, do you remember being back in that time? And so like, what made you be like, no, you know, there's more for me. I'm going to leave this because yeah, so many people do stay in things that aren't working because it feels like it's easier to stay than to leave. Well, it was a pretty rocky road. I had married my father, a replica of my father. So as well as being, a, you know, a dope grower, he was also a really angry sort of guy. I think it was building for a while, but the main turning point was, I realised in hindsight he had mental illness, but I didn't know that as a naive 20-something-year-old. And one night the police came to the door and he was out and I later found out out with his mistress, but I didn't know, any, you know, I didn't believe in any. My world was so small then. And what had happened was there'd been a barking dog down the road and he had written a note to the people to shut their dog up. And he'd drawn a really sick picture about, of the dog um, as if he was going to kill the dog if they didn't shut the dog up. And this very handsome policeman, young policeman, came to the door and my husband was 10 years older, as I mentioned. So this guy was more my age. He was with an older policeman as well. And they came and said, you know, is so-and-so here? And I said, no, he's out at the moment. And they said, we believe that this is from him, this note that was found in the, the neighbour's mailbox. And the young guy looked at me and he said, you know this isn't normal, don't you? you know this isn't normal and he was so so handsome and so <laughs> he was so gorgeous but he was it was my age and so I just I really related to him and I said no I guess it's not but when you're living with it a lot and he said this is not normal and I said no okay and he said well can you get him to come down and have a chat with us when he gets home at the local police station I said sure okay and so that I think that was what gave me the at least open my mind to the fact that there was a choice, like, okay, I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to stay with this. This is not normal. What I thought was normal. And the friend's wedding, but we were on such rocky road that I didn't want him to come to the wedding with me. And so I did a road trip, which was about 10 hours. And I felt so incredibly free on that road trip that I just thought, this is what I want. I don't want to feel like I have to answer to anyone and tell them where I am. And I loved the feeling that no one in the world knew exactly where I was then. He knew I was between these towns, but it was just such a sense of freedom, this road trip, that 
that I, yeah, I just knew you then. I, I had I had a great time while I was away. That all people around my age, I felt normal and appreciated and not ridiculed or condemned, and which had been going on. So, yeah, it was a really big thing to go through as a young adult, especially a young adult who believed in the white picket fence and the perfect family. Uh, but that sense of freedom I felt on that road trip really was the magnet that pulled me forward. Well, and I'm sure there's people, so many people out there that are living in a similar situation though right now. And so then you had that moment and that taste of freedom. But then, so what did you do? Like, were you able to just leave? And was it easily? Like, did he, once you were firm that you were leaving, did he let you? Or did he put up a fight? Well, it, it was a bit tricky. Yeah, he threw all my belongings out the window. Yeah, that was, <laughs> so he wasn't yeah, right. It's like nobody, even if he's got having fun on the side and all that stuff, like it's basically like, you're, yes. like he wants control and then you're saying you're out? No, no, yes. no. Like, yeah. So we went through that and then he also rallied in every single friend of his saying to come in and say, don't leave, you know, he's, he's a good man and da-da-da-da-da. And I just got a new job in a bank and it was a really happy team and, and I just felt like it was a new beginning. And then I went to the movies one night and uh, one afternoon he was coming with me and just at the last minute he cancelled and we were meeting other friends there. And when I got home, he'd gone through um, all of our photo albums from, you know, the last six or seven years or something with the Stanley knife. Do you have Stanley knives? Like anyway, a knife, a very sharp knife that you normally have in your tool shed. It's got a razor sharp blade on it. So he went through all of our photos and cut himself out of every photo so that I wouldn't have a memory of us. And, uh, yeah, and I just remember thinking, gosh, I married another. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that hopefully was like finalised yourself, like, and I am out. (laughs) Thank you for Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up pretty fast and then I transferred onto another, a whole different region. After that, I left that life, that life behind. Yeah. So where did you go? <laughs> what happened next? Uh, well, I moved to the north coast of New South Wales, which is where I live now, but I've lived here a few times and I, it finally called me back to settle. I spent a year just trying every drug on the planet. Just Well, not quite, but I just... Um, I think I just cut loose like because I hadn't I'd met him straight from school and so I hadn't actually had any time as a partying 18 or 19 year old I'd gone straight into a mortgage paying responsible young adult so for a year I just it just went a little bit crazy but I was always I had enough common sense to always just pull myself back and when friends went a bit crazier I was like no nah, enough I've done enough and I was still working in in the bank and then uh one of my sisters said she uh, wanted to go and get her scuba diving certificate. She said, let's go up to North Queensland. And so I went up there, which is the top of Australia, the Great Barrier Reef. So I went up there with her to get um, our diving certificate and we were on an island to get our scuba diving certificate. And uh, while she was cracking onto our um, diving instructor, which was very handy in passing our tests, I realised I wanted to live on an island, so I quit banking and I applied to a couple of the islands in North Queensland and got a job as a, what they called a dish pig. Wow. Washing it, just kitchen hand. And I left banking behind and went, went and lived on an island for two years. Um, beautiful, amazing tropical island on the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, the first year of that was in the kitchen and then I did voluntary work to learn cocktails and then I ended up the second year in the bar overlooking a, a million dollar view and swaying palm trees and the works. Wow. Yeah. So was that, yeah, like obviously being the dish person and stuff like that, even like that's not like dream job, but it was just, you were like, I want to live on the island. I want to have this experience and this joy. And so it's just like, great. And then I'll do, yeah, whatever to make money. Like, I love that so much. Mm, that's exactly, I, I just wrote I, in my application letter, I'm willing to do any job. and. Hence, <laughs> hence that one. And did you know yeah. anybody when you moved there? You were just like going to an island. 
No, but I was in my mid, I think I was uh, 24. I was 24 when I moved there and there were 120 staff and 90% of them were in their 20s. So it didn't take. Is it a huge uh, like vacation destination, a holiday so that they're all like lots of young people are there just, yeah, making money and enjoying life for a couple of years. Yes. Yeah, so it was a, I think it was a four-star resort for 300 and something people. And so, yeah, we, we had like a staff village and you'd go down to the resort, do your shift and then go back to the village and do whatever you like. Yeah. It was beautiful. We'd take boats out to the reef on days off and raid the kitchen and take picnic lunches to nearby islands. It was it was an incredible existence, yeah. And so then after that, are you just like, okay, I'm ready to rejoin society? Like what made you leave? Did you get your fill and then? Yeah, I just, um, I really loved island life, but I, I wanted to go where no one knew me because on the island you don't have any privacy and you've sort of got to say hello, wave, nod your head, wave hello to, you know, 120 staff every day up and down the hill and and I just wanted to be anonymous. So I went overseas. I went and lived in London for a few years and um, worked in a pub there and in the kitchen and then I took on, I got sick of being around alcohol, started doing and uh so I took a job um, as a living carer for an elderly lady and that sort of was the, the turning point that, that took me towards palliative care later. And so, yeah, up until this point, you're just taking jobs. or Well, not. I mean, you had first banking, but then once you leave that marriage or relationship, okay, like, let me take this. Okay, I want to live on an island. Now I want to go away to London. Sure, whatever pays the bills. Is that like when you take that job to be the live-in caretaker, I'm guessing you're just like looking for a job to pay. You're not like, I have always dreamt of taking care of people. No. no. <laughs> None of that. I wanted a live-in job where I could save to go off to the Middle East for a while. That's all it was. I wanted to cut my expenses. And so that's what I did and uh, went off with my English boyfriend and we went down to and lived in Israel for about a year and travelled through Egypt. And uh, But even still, when I came back to Australia with him, I just fell straight back into banking and it was never a job I wanted, but it started becoming obvious that, I used to have this theory in my young self had this theory that as long as my personal life was happy, it didn't matter what my working life was. And so I would do any job as long as I could move towns and be nomadic and be the person I thought I was or, or who I was then, as long as my home life was fine. I never sort of considered that there could be joy in my working life as well and that I would find that. And there was just a point when the dissatisfaction of working back in banking back in Australia started really wearing me down and I, I started doing some real soul searching around it and realised that I wanted a job with with heart that didn't involve high heels or stockings or makeup. They were <laughs> that was a prerequisite. Any any job, just as long as there's no stockings, makeup, high heels and there's no and, and I could do it with heart. And that's how I fell back into care work with the elderly, which uh, my first live-in person after the rela that relationship had broken up years later, I, um, yeah, I ended up my first patient as a live-in person was terminally ill and I didn't know that when I took the job on and that sort of opened the door to eight years of working with dying people and uh, really became a huge part of my 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 journey, yeah, my life's journey. Yeah, wow. So when you're taking a job, so you're living, that's people, yeah, especially that person, you didn't know they were going to be terminal, but they are of a certain age. Did no. you know that they, did they have some sort of, you know, thing that they were suffering from or was it just old age? Yeah. So she, this lady had been in hospital and uh, she wanted to go home. She was very wealthy, just wanted to be home and recover in, at home. And so the only way she was allowed home was if she could have a 24 hour carer. 
And so when she went home, she thought she was going to get better. Her family thought, well, it'd be good to have a carer there anyway. And initially, I think they were going to take me on just for a couple of months, but then I got on really well with the family. And then they said, within a week or two, they said, look, I think, you know, if you want to stay on, you can stay on as her carer. And at that time, I'd started becoming a singer-songwriter, so I was wanting no rent so I could go out and gig, you know, on my nights off and stuff like that. And, yeah, and then I it was after that offer was made, do you want to stay on? And I said, sure. Then maybe a short time later, only a week or two later, she hadn't become any better. She She wasn't improving. And so then they had some more tests, and that's when they said, oh, actually, you've got terminal cancer. And... Uh, yeah, so I um, it was on Sydney Harbour, her her house, and uh, so I walked down to the harbour while the family was there, and just sat against this these sandstone cliffs and uh, looked out at the water and just said a very strong prayer and said, "Just God, give me strength," because I really believed that I wouldn't have been called to the work if I wasn't capable of it, and I'd been asking for a job with heart, so. Um, yeah, that was that was the start of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, especially yeah, you took it on not knowing you were going to be caring for someone terminal and just but yeah, that's just a big heart to want to be with, you know, a lot of people because I'm guessing that's like doing like taking them to the bathroom, like doing things that are not like that their family isn't even probably like wanting to necessarily do. And so yeah, if you you're living, are you really like with them all the time? I mean, you said you had nights off, but did you have a set schedule, but then like was still sort of like on call because you lived there? Yes. Um, I had a, two days and two nights off where other carers would come in and just do those shifts, but they would be like a day carer and a night carer. They didn't actually live there. And so I found on my days off, I just had to leave the house because if I stayed there, she would want me, not the other carers. And those carers would depend on me anyway. They'd come and interrupt me and ask me questions all the time. So it was pretty exhausting because sometimes I just wanted days off where I like- <laughs> didn't actually have to get out of the house. Yes, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and during the night she would call me down and um, I was up, upstairs and sweet old house and, uh, and she'd just want to talk to me. And in the middle of the night, I just woke up and I was just thinking about this, you know, that lamp over there. Let me tell you the story about that lamp. And I'd be like, it's three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so it was hard. I was, I was really ragged. But it helped me realise that I did want to work in palliative care, but I didn't want to do it in a living capacity. And so once she had died... The family asked me, would I like to stay on and look after the house because it was going to take about a year to settle all her affairs. So I ended up having that house on the harbour for free for a year while I worked in other palliative situations, um, worked for an agency, and I, but I was a day carer who then did 12-hour shifts from 8am to 8pm then I'd go home or then I'd go straight to a pub and do a gig afterwards. So those were, you're still visiting in homes, but yeah, you're just going for the day. Yes. So how did you decide or where did it come to you? Did did they start opening up to you about regrets or how do you even start to have these? I'm going to start asking people about their regrets. There was never... I think this has been misunderstood a bit with the the global sensation and, of, yeah, of my work. It's like shared in a certain way sometimes. That's like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and thank you for asking. It's a great question. I didn't ever actually sit down and say, like, so got I've any got regrets or ready. anything like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The only reason I actually had my notepad there was because I, I kept a journal and they slept, dying people sleep a lot. And so I still had to be in their room but I had to, or in their home, but I had to be quiet. And so I was going through such a healing time myself that I was writing the journal for my own benefits, having no idea I would share any of that learning later. And so the actual subject of regrets just came up naturally after the, the clients got to know me. I think it was maybe just my listening ear or my manner, I, do, I don't know. But when people are at the end of their life, they there's not really a lot of 
I mean, I say that, I was about to say there's not a lot of room left for just trivial conversation. I say that after I've been woken up at three o'clock to talk about lamps. <laughs> but she but... really wanted to tell a story, though, it sounds like. So not the lamps. That, she yeah, did. So they like, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she was lonely. She she had lived on her own, that, that lady, for about 50 years. So for her to have a young woman ready to listen it was a really lovely thing for her. So, yeah, but most of the conversations I had with my patients were just deep and real straight from the start because they all knew they were going to die. She didn't know she was going to die until it was diagnosed towards the end. Whereas most of the people I, I went to after her had had made the choice, okay, I'm dying, I'm going to go home to die, I'll get a carer in at home. And so mm. the conversations were just deep and meaningful and beautiful and raw, tragic, hilarious, all of it. And just from one range, one extreme to another over a whole range of emotions. So it just came up naturally around regrets. And the only questions I asked were if they had already brought up the subject. And so many times it was like, I just wish I'd done this or I just wish I'd done that. And then I would ask questions because it was obvious they wanted to keep talking about it. So just to create a safe container for them, I guess. And then I just started recognising within quite a short time in palliative care around these conversations that regrets were actually a really common theme. And so I started paying attention for my own benefit because I thought, okay, I've held some of these people while they're crying about their regrets and I'm, I'm there trying to soothe the anguish that they're going through. I don't want to experience this feeling myself. And so... I just started making notes around it and um, trying to change my own life and just become a lot more courageous and let go of what anyone else thought of me and stopped living up to other people's expectations. And it, it, it took years, absolutely years, to gift myself that real freedom of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just imagining... Because, yes, I, they, I'm guessing you're, they're just probably getting reflective and opening up. And, yeah, you're there. So they learn to trust you and open up and then like talking. And then, yeah, of course, that would have to make you think about, well, I guess not everybody. It wouldn't probably wouldn't make everybody think about <laughs> their lives. They'd be like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. No, like, <laughs> <you're right. laughs> but, but, yeah, I so um, at what point then – and well, does there a point come – is it that one before the other at the same time where you're like, oh, I need to tell other people about this. I'm going to write a book. Or did you finish, okay, I'm ready to move on to something else and move out of palliative care and start doing something else. And it came up first. Like, how did the idea for you to like share what you are learning through these people and about regrets and that come up for you? Well, there was sort of a couple of things happened. One is that there were two or three of my patients, two I can remember very clearly, in particular one elderly man, and he was squeezing my hand so tight it almost cut off the blood for in my hand, the circulation. But he said, don't you dare let all this learning go in vain. Don't let my mistakes be your mistakes and don't let them be the mistakes of anyone else that you meet. And so he was asking me to share them on, but I still had no idea that, I would be writing a book. It, it, it honestly didn't even cross my mind at all for those whole eight years. And then what happened was I was, I'd started getting some gigs at little folk festivals and things like that. And, and in hindsight, I was never a very confident performer, but I just had this drive to share my message and, and try and inspire people and to help them realise what freedom there is from courage and and that was a big part of what I wrote into my songs in one way or another but when I left palliative care I left because I set up a songwriting program in a women's jail wow. and so I was teaching that's amazing yes yeah it just was an idea where I wanted to work with hope because after being around dying people there's there's a lot of beautiful moments but there's there's not much hope and so through a friend of one of my patients I managed to get some funding to set up to see this idea through into reality and I set up this program and while I was doing that I was at a folk festival and I got chatting around the fire one night to this editor of a music magazine and he said 
write me an article about your experience in the jail and I'll publish it in the magazine. And I said, okay, fine. So I did that. And at that stage, the only writing I'd been doing was my journal or, or songwriting. And it was only songs that were public. And so I wrote an article for him for the magazine. And then I thought, why aren't I writing more? I, I love writing. I'll start a blog. And that's sort of where it all started from. I thought, what do I write about? And I just got some very clear guidance from within just write what you know and I thought okay well what I know is regrets of the dying and yeah so that's how it actually came into a more formal form or, or into a public form I, I just uh, one step led to the next which led to the next and that really is how I live my life now because I trust that we, we really only need to know the, the next step or two and the rest will reveal itself when it's ready because if someone had have said to me, I would have taught songwriting in it, or I would have looked after dying people, I would have taught songwriting in a jail, I would have stepped into the public sphere, I'd have said, no way, I'm out of here. And uh, so, yeah, I just followed one step at a time. And, and then the regrets came into a more formal version. And, uh, and just found, I don't know, found the hearts of, of the, the planet because it just went crazy viral. And, it's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption from this week's podcast sponsor that I am seriously so excited about, Blissoma Skincare. I've been using their products for the last probably a month, and it has seriously changed my skin. I've been using Green Beauty for over 10 years now, and I was honestly a little hesitant to try this brand for fear that I wouldn't like it. And I am head over heels in love. I am not shitting you. You guys know I do not bullshit. It really is changing my skin. Okay. And it's authentic green beauty. They're not just greenwashing things. They do things differently than most of the cosmetic industry. And that makes a huge difference for the health of your skin. They use premium, raw, organic, botanical ingredients that they source themselves from local farms and from those around the world. But their processes yield more medicinal compounds from each plant. And then they preserve them for us so that we actually get the true benefits. They restore skin's vitality through the sacred relationship between plants and people. It's really cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Seriously, I'm obsessed. And apparently I'm not the only one because one of the products I've been using, Restore, a facial oil, uh, was requested on set for Elle Fanning while working on Maleficent 2. So it's 10 oils cold pressed and unrefined from rare seeds. It promotes a youthful plumped appearance. I don't know. I'm not a skincare like maven, but I do have to say I've been using their products for a month and my skin is changed. So go check them out, blissoma.com, links in the show notes. And they gave me a code, claim it, is good for 20% off all oils and serums. Feel free to DM me at your dryologist and I can let you know which products I've been using and what I love. But honestly, I am so obsessed with this brand. Go check them out. And let's get back to the episode. So when you're starting to write the blog and it just came up naturally, like, would you just write then, you know, sort of writing about a regret that you heard in sort of that way? Like it's, you didn't probably come right out. I have the five regrets was it or did you just start writing about different regrets and then you know as this you know then you're starting to feel more like oh I need to share this more I started I, I never narrowed it down to five while I was with dying people but I certainly started realizing there were common themes and so when I decided to write about the regrets of the dying I just wrote what those common themes were and there were five and so I just sat down and wrote the article in about half an hour and put it out there <laughs> because I knew it because I was walking I didn't have to do the research so that was just you were just I'm writing an article I'm just going to write this article here we go yes second one ever on my blog it was yeah. only the second blog <laughs> Is that what you just said? <laughs> the first one was the one for the jail. Yeah. It was, Amazing. It was about the jail. <laughs> so, 
like, wait a minute, did you just say yeah, this? You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. And then was yeah, I'm guessing it went so viral, then did you get approached to write a book or were you the one that's oh, I want to talk more about this. I'm gonna write a book. What happened was it was uh on the blog for about six months and a couple of people wrote and said I found your article, could I share it? And I said, sure, as long as you have a link back to bronnyware.com, like back to my website. And then I actually left the jail job because I was burning out and I moved back to a farm, not near my family, but it was the first time I'd gone back to living on the land. And I had this massive burnout. I, I slid into suicidal depression. I'd never been in that space before. And I think just all those years of giving and giving and I had no one really supporting me through all of that so while I was going through that the blog was just okay I was still writing a blog but that article was occasionally getting shared people would write and I'd say sure share it and it wasn't until I was at the end of coming through that time and I just said to life okay I'm bored of being sad I'm bored of being depressed I don't know which way forward I don't want to do pub gigs. I don't want to be around alcohol and going out at 10 o'clock at night and playing in pubs where they're just busy watching the boxing on the screens and stuff like that. And But I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Show me the way forward. And then the blog took off. So it's like about six months, six or seven months after I had written it. And it just went ballistic, like absolutely crazy and had over 3 million hits in the first year and like something like 10 years, three years or something. And so uh, an agent in the States wrote to me and said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, yeah, sure, everyone's thought of writing a book. And uh, she said, I really think we've got something here. And uh, so the only way I could write it, because I didn't feel that just writing about the dying regrets would be relatable to everybody. And so I wrote it as a memoir, sharing my life journey and how those regrets actually changed my life so that it was a, a lot more relatable for people to implement the changes. And so that book thing, that proposal was rejected by 25 publishers. They didn't want your story or? No, they didn't want the subject oh, matter. The got it. Regrets of the dying. Which I get, yeah. I mean, it does sound a little, it sounds pretty morbid. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that's not going to sell. And so I thought, oh, well, stuff it. You know, I've been an independent songwriter. I'll be an independent author. And so I put the book out myself. I didn't realize that. Yes. Yeah, I, I released it independently. And then it it just, the, the article kept going. So then I self-published. And then when people were asking, could they share the article? I would say, yes, as long as you include this bio, which says there's a book available on this. And then, and by then I'd, I'd come out of, out of that, that time, I'd met a man and we decided to have a child together. And uh, I was 44 when we conceived. I'd never been pregnant. He'd never fathered a child. So we didn't know if we could and we tried. So I was pregnant and um, about to have a baby at 45. And... Um, the independent release started gaining momentum and it started and so then I started getting a lot of interview requests from big places like The Guardian and Sunday Times, like big big establishments. And then um, I ended up not staying with my daughter's father. Um, it, yeah, so that was a really tricky time while I, I left when, when I was pregnant. Oh, you left while you were pregnant and at the same time you're like yeah. gaining yeah, it was it was a really crazy and challenging time just to have to make that that decision. And then I was in labor in, in hospital. I'd moved back to my, my hometown. I was living with my parents and I was in the hospital in labor and that's when the book really took off. And so I was actually doing interviews while um, I was in labor. <laughs> so I was, you know, I'm, I'm typing I'm, and uh, trying to get them all out of the way before the baby came. I can, I can do it. Yep. All right. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was even one where I said to, to the man, can you just hold, can you just hold on oh just, just a minute, please? Just, just a minute. And, and then I've just put him on pause and I'm just going, <laughs> you know, 
And so at about 11.30 that night, I just closed the computer and I just sent a very strong prayer and said, send me help or I quit. And it had been 14 years from when I'd started as a songwriter to try and, well, I I was doing photography a little bit before that, but 14 years that I'd been trying to make an income from my own work. And I was ready to quit because I was a 45-year-old woman about to become a mother and I wanted to be present for my child and I knew there'd been never be another chance at that age and uh, so I just yeah said a very strong prayer sent help or I quit and the next day I gave birth to my daughter and within 24 hours of that hay house my dream publishing house rang up and offered me a publishing deal and my book's gone on to be the fastest foreign rights seller in hay house history and amazing yeah, yeah, it's it's in 32 languages with a film in a movie in the pipeline now. So it's you don't know, you, you really don't know the seeds that you sow and and where they're going to lead to. So I I left the hospital with a baby and a publishing contract. So that was pretty amazing. Yes. <laughs> so <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then since then you've written a couple more books. And how is that too, since you were saying, you know, you're putting your story in the book, but then you're also like, well, we're all humans. So we're all going through things all the time, no matter, look at me, I wrote this amazing book that's sharing great information, but oh, wait, now this is happening in my life. But so um, the inspiration for the other books, is that things that you too, like that you were going through and like, I need to share this, you know, with other people, whereas the regrets book you're living people telling you those regrets all the time. And then you're trying to like, how can I take this knowledge they're giving me? And so that I'm not living this way. And so, yeah, like what was the inspiration for the following books? And did you know, Mm. I will write it. Like I am an author now. This is what I'm doing. It was all too much of a blur. (laughs) No, it was all too much of a blur to even consider that. I did feel immensely grateful because I realized the author path would suit my quiet nature much more than gigging in pubs like performing well, and in pubs. helps with being a mom not having to be gigging in pubs. yeah which can be done but yeah it can be done that's right but what also happened when my daughter was born was um I ended up with a disease in my body at the same time so even though she was healthy the pregnancy had been healthy I was diagnosed with rheumatoid oh. arthritis it triggered that in my body and so then, you know, I was doing interviews while with her on my breasts, you know, through the middle of the night and it was just crazy. So I, I didn't really have time to think about anything for quite a while. I just just kept doing what I could, like learning how to be a mum, learning how to do interviews, learning how to survive with your hands feeling like they're in vats of oil and uh, hands and feet. And so it wasn't until maybe about six months after Five Regrets was published the second time through Hay House. and that my publisher said, just wondering how, you know, what you've got next, like what's your next book going to be? I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't had time to even think about that. And they said, and I said, I thought you said there was no no pressure because they uh, they had mentioned that at the start, no pressure, you just get on with, with being a mum and they didn't know about the disease then. And, uh, and that was, you know, just overwhelming trying to adjust to life with, out full use of your body and also while being a mum and, and everything and being a single mum. And so I said, look, all I can do is short stories. That's all I'm capable of. And they said, well, it's no pressure from us, darling, but your audience is waiting. We would like something else. So that's how my second book, Your Year for Change, came out because it's 52 short stories and based around read a story a week and it helps you change your year. And some people just read it right through. And even though I didn't have the energy to market it and it was coming in the shadow of the top five regrets of the dying, it still turned out to be the favourite for some of my audience, which is really lovely to hear because I just sort of sent it out like the middle child, like off you go, get out in the world and see how you go. And uh, But when I, I read that book years later for the audio book, I thought, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe I put this beautiful <laughs> book together in such a state. Right. Yeah, and, and and then I just sort of I started thinking I wanted to write fiction and my publisher said, well, 
you know, fictions, you don't make any money to your third book with fiction and da -da, you know, all these sort of rules around publishing. And, and they said, just stick with, with what you do. You're doing it well. And so I, I didn't want to write another memoir because I felt very exposed. Having, I can't not, if I'm going to write, I'm going to write fully yeah. and honestly. And that's a really vulnerable position to put yourself in publicly. But if you're going to connect with your audience, you've got to be real. And so when uh, I knew they were waiting on another book and I was thinking, no, no. And then my dad died. And so I sort of used that as a bit of a time to just go offline for a while because I, I do enjoy offline sabbaticals sometimes. I just take myself off for a month or whatever or a week or anything. And uh, so as soon as I'd created that space, the next book just started coming through and it was like, oh, no, 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 not another <laughs> memoir. Please don't. I don't want to share any more of myself. But that became Bloom and that's, it's a courage of, a tale of courage, surrender and breaking through upper limits. And it was about my journey with disease and trusting in the lessons that, um, the challenges that you're given, finding a way to actually see it as a gift and to trust in the, that it's been given to you from a place of love. And, yeah, so Bloom's gone out there. It's Nothing's as big as Five Regrets, but it's really helped a lot of people through illnesses and challenges, just different challenges. And so after that I just thought, no, actually I want to write a novel. So I've just finished writing a novel and now I'm back to square one because my publisher doesn't do the fiction that I've written. And so now I'm, I'm an author starting all over again in the sense of like while well, still supporting the other three books in the non-fiction part of my life. But, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be looking for a publisher soon and starting that whole journey all over again with, with, my, new, with my novels. So yeah. I am an author now. I'm, I'm well and truly. I, I've come to realise that when I'm at my absolute best, it's when I'm just writing, when I'm lost in my story. It's just so much else comes with writing. I love it. And I'm so I just love I mean, I've so enjoyed talking to you and your whole story. And then the following, you know, like, okay, let me write a song at 35. And then you're out performing at festivals and, you know, doing songwriting for the prisoners. And now yeah, you don't need to be writing fiction. You could keep carrying, like, you know, like, but you do, like, inside you. But it's, like, just the, the, the listening to yourself and trusting yourself whenever, no, when everybody's like, well, no, what? Just keep doing this. This would be great. Well, you know, like that. And just I love hearing that from people that they are when everybody probably, I'm sure there's some people believing you, but most people, fiction, huh? And like, you know, and like, mm. you're like, no, I feel this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. Well, it's it's about what you're about, you know, claim, with claiming your joy. And when I decided to do it, I'd been homeschooling my daughter for a year and then I sent her to school because it was just like, Bronnie, what were you thinking? <laughs> Why don't you, you're a single mom, you've got physical <laughs> challenges and now you want to homeschool. And so finally I woke up and sent her off to this gorgeous little school. And I had a bit more time for the first time you know, in seven or eight years. And so I, and I did it for joy. I did it, I thought, okay, I'm not going to think about the publishing at all. I'm just going to write this story because if I put a proposal together and send it to a publisher, then there's a deadline. Then I've already had to tell them where the story wanted to go, like is going to go. I didn't know where the story was going to go. I wrote the book like I lived my life, one step at a time. I didn't write a plot. I just said to the characters, where do you want to go from here? And, you know, when I made that decision, I'm going to write a novel, the first thing I did was I Googled how to write a novel. <laughs> How many words in a novel? How many words in a chapter of a novel? <laughs> and then I just developed some characters and went on a journey with them. So I did it completely for joy because I thought I want to write a novel. I want to create a world that doesn't exist and I want to see if I can do it. I, I want to write for joy. I want to write for joy. And uh, But then once it's finished, it's like now because I am an author and a published author, it's like, well, it would be a bit of a waste not to try and get it public. So, yeah, but that was never the, I, I didn't reach out to any publishers at all until I finished it, yeah. And now, like, 
Because yes, I, I've heard this from other authors before too that have done nonfiction and then want to go into fiction and stuff like that. And it's so like, how do you deal with, do you have feelings come up yourself of like the self-doubt or like, oh, they're not going to accept it because they want this from me. Like even those you're going a different route, using different publishers, probably different agents, whatever, that are all about fiction, that it is in many ways beginning again, even though you've had so much success. So do you have those sorts of thoughts come up and what keeps you going and showing up? I guess there's a little bit of confidence in me because of how the first publishing thing turned out. So I, I guess there are times when, when I think, oh, gosh, I hope this isn't a drawn-out procedure here, you know, in trying to find a publisher and I hope I can find a publisher. I don't consider that I'll self-publish, but, uh, you know, I do listen to a podcast sometimes that's by a self-published woman and it's re she's really inspiring and so I'm not closed to that idea. But no, I don't really, I don't have doubts in the sense of I hope it's not good enough because I've learnt that. So when I put out Five Regrets, it wasn't edited and it was sold into those 32 languages unedited. It wasn't until several years later that I said to, um, so the the independent one went out in 2011 the Hay House author went out, um, the issue went out in 2012 and I think it was 2019, it might have only been 2018 or 2019 that we actually edited Five Regrets and that was because I said to my publisher, when the book edition of Five Regrets comes out, can we edit it? And they said, oh, let's just do it now anyway and put out an, an updated edition. And I said, oh, great, okay. So all I did then was tightened it up a bit and uh, because my writing had improved. But I did work with editors on the other two books and I realised how incredible an edit, a good editor is and how important their role is. And so I feel I've got it to a point where it's as good as I can get it with my skills to the, where they are now without an editor's help. And so I also know from inside knowledge at publishing houses, I, I could go and pay five grand and get an editor. Or if I create enough interest in the book through publishing, then through the publishing industry, then they're going to provide a good editor anyway. And so I know that it's not the best book in the history of the planet. Neither was Five Regrets, but over a million <laughs> people have bought it. So, you know, you don't have to be the best at anything you just have to have courage and be committed and so with this one I sort of feel the same it's like okay well I don't know the rules of writing I I know how to write for delight I know how to write for joy I know how to tell a good story in a book that's they're my strengths and so no I'm I'm not nervous about that I because I know it's still got room for improvement even though I still think it's a good book but also because I have a bit of a feeling with it, like Five Regrets, where I think I have a feeling this is going to do really, really well. And I didn't have that with the other two books. Hmm. I did, you know, and so that sort of, I guess, gives me a bit of confidence. But there is that other part of me thinks, oh, where do I start in finding a publisher, especially if I want to try and do it without an agent because they... They're wonderful, but they get a lot of <laughs> money and I haven't had to do that yet. Oh, right, because so. you've also not needed one. You don't, yeah, because they That's came right. to you and then you already had the, right, right, right. And I know other authors that work with Hay House, same thing, that they never had agents because they had <laughs> this, like that yes. relationship. Yeah, but a lot of the publishers who I, I, I would like to be published by, they only accept it from yeah. agents. And so I'm just trying some... You've got to get creative in that, in that aspect as well. Yeah. Well, that's, I originally, re I reached out to you because I was, my book proposal was going out on submission. I'm now in meetings with publishers this week. But yeah, I reached out because I was going to ah. use one of the, I was like, oh, I'm going to use one of your, I decided to last minute add a quote from your book. And she was like, oh, <laughs> very like, you guys, you can't, you know, copyright stuff. And I never share like that. And she, even though she was named anyway, I didn't use it in the book proposal, but it made me reach out because my book is about eliminating the word should from your life and changing it out to want. And so how that constantly makes oh, you fantastic. conscious of what you're doing, why you're doing it, working through alignment, confidence, intuition, all that stuff by focusing on one word. I gave it up when my father passed away suddenly in 2008 and it shook me up a lot. 
But yeah, so the publishing world, like that's, I'm like, I'm just now learning the nonfiction publishing world and all of that. I've been on that journey for the last, I don't even know how long. And so, um, yeah, so now you're in a yeah, new but, world with the fiction. Yeah, but that's a, that's a really great topic. You, you know, your book, there's a gap for it. There's definitely, that's a, that's wisdom that you're speaking and it will help a lot of people. So it will find yeah. its space, its, its place in, in there. There's a gap. Yeah. I'm excited. It's a funny week though. Yeah. Talking to having the meetings and like, okay, they're excited, but does that mean? And, but yeah, I'm same thing. It's like the doubts come up. This could not happen, but I believe it's happening. It's happening. There's always self-publishing, but I know people see the same thing as me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There may be self-publishing, but there's I'm pretty also sure I'm publishing. getting an awesome deal. <laughs> We're yeah. locking it in. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and you are too. Let's let's say it. We're claiming it right oh, now. Yes. Ronnie. <laughs> You're getting your okay. fiction deal. I'm getting my F, F the show to right. do the once is the <laughs> We heard it with all these beautiful listeners. <laughs> it's happening. Okay, so I'm gonna pull up an image. I have a product line. And these are all phrases that go on my keychains. This is one keychain pictured here. So I ask every guest to pick which phrase, not so much they like the most, but which one they want as a reminder in their life right now and why? So I, I choose Joy because I do choose Joy regularly. My mum's name is Joy. I call her Joyful. My daughter's middle name is Joy. And so I operate my life a lot by choosing Joy. But I don't know if I need the reminder of it so much. I think I'll go with everything is going my way. Okay. Yep. Or let that shit go. Um, no, everything is going. Everything, everything is going. Everything is going yes. your way. You're getting that fiction. Deal. There was too many good choices. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> okay. The next question is: What is a go-to to raise your joy levels when you maybe are not feeling in the best mood, or you're supposed to be on a call and you don't really want to be, or something like? What's something you do to raise your joy levels? gratitude just gratitude and presence because when I'm present I can always find beauty around me and so often natural beauty but I can always find some sort of beauty so yeah and then be grateful for that and straight away that's that just lifts me so yeah gratitude and, yes. and presence Feel those. Okay. Ask everybody to apply this question or this phrase to their own life. Really. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So maybe a habit, a way of being. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is. What is easiest for me is to carry on serving publicly. What is best for me is taking regular time out to not be online yep okay the last question <laughs> <laughs> i like thrive like i love social media and stuff like i'm someone that like gets feels joy and connection and purpose on there but also yes you know it's like so that's why it's even harder sometimes for me to do it because i'm not someone that like feels like they're falling down deep holes i'm like i'm of purpose i love this space and then i'm but still I'm like okay let's <laughs> let's close everything down <laughs> yeah that's beautiful and i and i love that that i can see that in you and and hear that in you and i i so love my audience and they're very loyal and i and it's genuine love that flows between us but I am naturally happier just drinking chai, rocking on my garden seat out the back, just not being in the public eye. But I also honour the message that I've been brought here to teach. So, Love yeah. that, yes. Okay, the last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I believe that our feelings of being successful, fulfilled, enough, worthy, whatever it is, are not out there somewhere. Once I have this job, meet this person get the book deal, have this much money, then I'll feel whatever it is. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? Um, permission, just permission. Ooh. Yeah. Permission just to do it, to continue doing it my way. 
Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you so, so, so much. It's been such a delight to talk to you and hear your journey. And I know that you are going to inspire so many. You're already doing that, but I'm so delighted to be able to share you with my audience. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait to see where your book goes and where your whole journey goes as well. But thank you for having me and thank you to everyone for tuning in. Thank you all for listening, whether you listened to it the first time it came out, October of 2020, and listened again, or it's your first time. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow me at underscore Trisha Huffman at Claim It Podcast. I also have at your geologist for my product line and daily inspiration app and more things that I share that inspire me there. You can find Brawny at Brawny Wear um, and find her books and everything at brawnyware.com. Oh, and she's at brawny.ware, by the way. Uh, Links will be in the show notes. I hope that it empowered you in some way. And uh, remember to go check out the amazing skincare line, blissoma.com. You can get a free skin consultation. Why not? go get my daily inspiration app. It's called Own Your Awesome. If you haven't yet, hit follow wherever you're listening, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Thank you so much. And last thought of the day, what are you claiming of the day? I don't know if this is your last thought of the day. Last thought of this episode, what are you claiming for yourself right now?